Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. While you're turning, let me remind you that Grace Gumbo starts next week. I think that's pretty cool. Who did that? Really? Very good. Um, We, Tiffany and I, moved here. For those that don't know, my name is Chris Luke. I'm one of the ministers on staff responsible for the 20s and 30s, as well as men's ministry, and sometimes responsible to teach you on Wednesday nights, which is always my pleasure. Um, but my wife and I moved here three years ago, and gumbo is especially sweet for us because it was really what began to make Grace Van home. We moved on June 1st, just had our three-year anniversary, and so the first thing that we really plugged into here at Grace was gumbo. Uh, if you've never been a part of it, I highly recommend it. It's just a great way to inch a little bit closer into the center of our church community. Um, Tonight we will be giving particular attention to Ephesians 1, verse 9, but I'm going to read uh, verses 7 through 10 so that we can kind of get our bearings in our passage. However, before we read, there are a couple things that you need to know about our context. Um, In the original language, verses 3 through 14 make up one long sentence. We have added the verse numbers and uh, the sentence breaks in our translations in order to better help with reading and um, uh, study, but when it flowed out of the mind and heart and through the pen of the Apostle Paul, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 was one long sentence. In this section, verse 3 serves as a sort of topic sentence says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So in verses 3 through 14, Paul is pouring out his heart in praise to God for the fact that he has given us every spiritual blessing in Christ. Verse 3 tells us this much, and then in verses 4 through 14, Paul goes on to name some of those blessings. It's like you're praying, God, thank you, you've given us everything, and then you go on to name some of the everything. Um, Some of the things that Paul names, election or predestination, verses 4 and 5, adoption, verse 5, redemption, verses 7 through 10, and so on. What we have here in this section is doxology. Paul is worshiping God. But what we find is that Paul's theology drives his doxology. Deep truths are the roots of Paul's worship. So if someone says to you, you know, I don't really like that doctrine stuff, doctrine divides. Well, you can just take them to Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 and show them actually doctrine, or another name for which is biblical truth, leads us to the highest end that we were made for. To worship God for who He is and what He's done for His people in Christ. Biblical truth is the root of our worship. Ephesians 1, I'll read verses 7 through 10. Follow as I read, this is the Word of God. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, 
things in heaven and things on earth. Now, I could spend a lot of time on any one portion. I'm all the way through verse 11 in my class, and we've spent probably 12 to 15 weeks getting there. So I'm going to have to, you know, consolidate to get done before tomorrow. Um, In order to understand verse 9, we need to see that it's a part of this larger section, verses 7 through 10, where Paul is praising God for his uh, gift of redemption in Christ. There's a few things that I want to say about redemption And then we're going to focus on verse 9. Sin separated us from God and earned us his condemnation. God is holy and just. He cannot compromise any one of his attributes. God must judge sin. We were separated from God in our sin, and all who die in separation from God, still guilty of their sins, will be punished under his wrath justly. For all eternity. But in Christ we have redemption. Jesus paid our sin debt with his blood. God forgave us our sins on account of Jesus' payment. And not only that, he also credited us with Jesus' full account of righteousness so that we could be brought back into loving fellowship with him. Verses 7 and 8 tell us that this is all according to the riches of God's grace which he lavished on us with in perfect wisdom and insight. So in perfect wisdom, God made a way to uphold his justice in judgment on sin, while at the same time pouring out his grace in justifying sinners, making sinners right with him. The way is Jesus Christ. Jesus was judged in our place. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Amen and amen. But what I want to show you tonight, and what Paul is rejoicing in in verse 9, is that redemption in Christ is not just a New Testament truth. Redemption in Christ is the central truth of all of the Scriptures. Everything in the Old Testament is moving towards it, and everything in the New Testament is either coming to establish it in the person and work of Jesus Christ, or spelling out the implications of it. Uh, in the epistles and and things like that. So what Paul is saying in verse 9 is that in inviting us into this great salvation in Christ, one of the things that God was doing was making known to us the mystery of his will. In other words, God not only opened our eyes to believe in Jesus' redeeming work for the salvation of our souls, but he also opened up the whole story for us in order that we might be able to see how this redemption came to pass. When when Paul talks about the mystery being revealed, he means that though the truth about salvation in Jesus was once hidden, it is now revealed. When we talk about the mystery being revealed, we're talking about the fact that salvation in Christ has always been the plan. It was never not the plan. Jesus Christ has always been the only hope for the world. But it has not always been so clear as it is now. The mystery has only been made known since the time of Christ. The, the, um, the fullness of truth of the truth of salvation in Christ was concealed for thousands of years until the time that God deemed right to draw back 
the curtain. So keeping in mind that redemption in Christ is the central truth of the scriptures and that everything in the Old Testament is moving towards it, I want to give you four ways that our salvation in Christ was concealed in the Old Testament before it was revealed in the New. Number one, it was concealed in a promise all the way back in Genesis 3.15. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to have you turning enough as the night goes on. Genesis 3.15, some of you may know, is, is known as the Proto-Euangelion, the first gospel. So in Genesis 1 and 2, we have the creation account. In Genesis, the beginning of Genesis 3, we have the account of the fall into sin. Then in Genesis 3.14 to 19, we have God's response to sin, where God curses Adam and Eve and the serpent. But tucked right in there in the middle of the curses, in Genesis 3.15, God makes a promise. It's a promise of grace. It's a promise of salvation. A promise that Adam and Eve will one day have a descendant who will crush the head of the serpent, destroying the effects of the fall, destroying Satan, sin, and death. This promise in Genesis 3.15 is a foretelling of Christ. And not only the promise of Genesis 3.15, but many other promises throughout the Old Testament, such as God's promise to Abraham that he would have as many descendants as there are stars in the sky, sand on the seashore. In the New Testament, Paul tells us that the true children of Abraham are not those who have his bloodline, but those who have his faith. All those who have faith in Christ are the true children of Abraham. Or how about God's promise to King David in 2 Samuel 7, that he would have a descendant that would rule on his throne forever, whose kingdom would never end. I want you to turn for a minute to Luke chapter 1. I'm going to read a few verses from 2 Samuel 7, and then we're going to read together from Luke chapter 1 so that you can see this. In 2 Samuel 7, God is making a covenant with King David. Verses 12 through 16, you can just listen as I read these. God says to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Okay, so this is God's covenant that he's making with David, promises that he's making with David. Now, we should understand that some of these promises have partial fulfillment in David's son Solomon and then in, in their sons for generations. But these promises ultimately find their fulfillment in Christ. And I'm not just drawing that out of thin air somewhere. The reason that I can say that is because we're about to look at what the angel Gabriel says to Mary right before the Holy Spirit conceives in her womb, um, conceives Jesus in her womb. So look at Luke chapter 1. And remember, the, the covenant with David is about his kingdom being established forever, the throne of David being established forever. Luke 1, 31 to 33. 
And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. So the promise to David some thousands of years ago was that David would have a son that would rule on his throne forever. Well, the angel Gabriel says to Mary that her son, Jesus, the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Sounds familiar. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises to David in 2 Samuel 7. Our salvation in Christ was concealed for thousands of years. Number one, it was concealed in promises. Number two, our salvation in Christ was also concealed in pictures. So right after salvation in Christ was concealed in a promise in Genesis 3.15, it was concealed in a picture in Genesis 3.21. Go ahead and turn to Genesis 3.21. Right there at the beginning. This is right after God has pronounced the curses on Adam and Eve and the serpent. Um, and, and it's right before God sends Adam and Eve out of his presence, proving the fact that sin does indeed separate us from God. Genesis 3, verse 21 says this. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. So God clothes them with animal skins. Remember, they were naked and they didn't know that they were naked before sin. And then sin comes and they realize they're naked and they're trying to cover themselves with fig leaves and shame enters the picture and all of that. But the last thing that God does before he sends them out of his presence, separated from him because of their sin, is he clothes them with animal skins. Now, what is the significance of the animal skins? This was a picture of the fact that even in our sin, God would make a way to clothe us in another's righteousness in order to be brought back into fellowship with him. And how did he get the skins? An animal had to be sacrificed. This is a foreshadowing of Christ. Salvation in Christ was concealed in promises and in pictures, and not only in the picture of animal skins in Genesis 3.21. Fast forward a few chapters, what about the ark? The ultimate significance of the ark was a foreshadowing of Christ. Anyone who gets in Christ will be saved from the destruction of God's wrath. Also, the sacrificial system in Israel. The main purpose of the whole sacrificial system in Israel was to prefigure Christ. He is the sacrificial Lamb of God. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus alone was the one true sacrifice that actually could take away sins. There are many more, but not only was salvation in Christ concealed in promises And in pictures, number three, it was also concealed in people. So a few examples. Uh, Jesus is the true and better Adam who keeps God's commandments on behalf of his people. You know that the Bible says that there are ultimately two heads of mankind, two representative heads 
of mankind. When Adam fell, we all fell. That's original sin as we know it. We've inherited Adam's sin, and uh, nobody's proved him wrong yet. Adam was the, Adam represented us in his life, and he did not follow God's commands, thus earning condemnation. But Jesus is the true and better Adam who did keep God's commands on behalf of his people. How about Moses, who goes up and mediates the law between God and man? Jesus is the true and better Moses. Jesus is the one true mediator between God and man. Jesus is the true and better Joshua, who leads God's people into the eternal promised land. Jesus is the true and better David, as we've seen, the king of God's kingdom forever. And so on, and so on, and so on. Salvation in Christ was concealed for thousands of years in promises, in pictures, in people, and as we'll see in a few minutes, also in prophecies. But to us, Paul says in Ephesians 1.9, God has lavished his grace on us, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. So Paul speaks of this mystery being revealed uh, in a few different places, but he's not the only one. Jesus himself, turn to Matthew chapter 13. In Matthew 13, the disciples ask Jesus why he is speaking to the people in parables. The, The disciples are having a hard time understanding why some people get it and some don't, and perhaps they think it would just... You know, if Jesus would just make it a little bit easier to understand, more people would get it. Jesus then goes on to say some things about parables that some might find shocking, but what I want to draw your attention to is what he says to the disciples. Look at verse 11 in Matthew 13. And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets. Some translations there would say mysteries. To you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. Then in verses 12 through 15, Jesus goes on to elaborate on how and why, a little bit of uh, how and why other people don't understand. But verse 16, he's back to the disciples, and he says this, But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear. And did not hear it. Jesus is drawing the focus, you know, they're concerned, why not other people? Why aren't they understanding? He's drawing the focus away from other people as if to say, just trust me with everyone else. I want to build into your faith right now. I want you to be amazed at how much grace has been given to you. I think we that we can have the, the same problem. Over the last few weeks in my class, we've been talking about hard truths like predestination. And these truths stir up all kinds of questions in us about everyone else. Well, what does this mean for that person in the faraway land? What does this mean for them over there? But Jesus is asking us to trust him, to believe that he is supremely good and that his plans and purposes of salvation are otherworldly glorious and more far-reaching than we could ever dare imagine. More than that, in revealing things like it says in Ephesians 1.4, that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, his aim is not to get us thinking about everyone else. He's drawing our attention 
to the grace that has been poured out on us. And that's what the Apostle Paul is rejoicing in in Ephesians 1, 8 and 9. God has lavished His grace on us according to His wisdom and insight. He has made known to us the mystery of His will. He has opened our eyes and our ears and our hearts and our minds to see and hear and understand and rejoice in things that people, even prophets, Jesus said, for thousands of years longed to see and hear and understand and rejoice in. Listen to Paul in Colossians 1, verses 25 and 26. He says, I have become a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to the saints. Do you understand or do you ever think about the privilege that we have, that God has opened our eyes and, and our hearts and our minds to the truth of his word, to the truth, the good news of, of our salvation in Christ. He has fully made known to us the truth of our full salvation in Christ, the mystery hidden for ages and generations. Jesus and Paul are not the only ones to speak this way. Uh, turn to First Peter. First Peter 1. Verses 10 through 12. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So understand that the prophets of the Old Testament served a couple distinct purposes. Their, their main overarching role was to speak God's word to his people uh, but there's really a dual purpose to this. Number one, they were announcing present judgment on God's people for their sin. And number two, they were announcing a future hope. So presently, God's people are in trouble. But amidst the announcement of present judgment, they're also announcing a future hope. And this future hope is announced as a new covenant that God would make with his people. Now, we know that this new covenant is... Uh, talking about the new covenant that's been established in Christ. But they didn't know that. The people that it was being spoken to didn't know that, but neither did the prophets who were speaking it know what they were talking about. They did understand that they were proclaiming a great hope amidst present judgment. I mean, it had to be thrilling for them to just think about here. Their whole uh, livelihood is crashing down around them. It had to be thrilling to think about what they were saying but they really didn't know what they were saying. Peter says they even searched and inquired carefully. They longed to know this person that they were talking about. They longed to know at what time this would take place, but they didn't. The mystery of salvation in Christ was concealed to them even as it was coming out of their mouths. 
It was not revealed to them who or exactly what they were speaking about. The only thing that was revealed to them is that they were serving not themselves, but us, to whom the the good news has been proclaimed in the gospel. In the Old Testament, salvation in Christ was concealed in promises, in pictures, in people, and in prophecies. I want you to turn to Isaiah 53. This is one of the most familiar Old Testament prophecies about Christ, and I'm going to read the whole thing. Um, As I do, I want you to be thinking about what Isaiah must be thinking, the, the hope that must be being stirred in him. But also think about the fact that he did not know who he was talking about. We look back at Isaiah 53 almost casually because we, we understand how things have been fulfilled in Christ. But he was not in the privileged position that we are to live after the time of Christ, to have the Old and New Testament Scriptures put all of this together for us. Um, Isaiah 53, I will read probably in its entirety. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt... He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Friends, the the whole Bible is about Jesus. In the Old Testament, he was concealed in promises. He was concealed in pictures. He was concealed in people and in prophecies, such as the prophecy of Isaiah 53. But the mystery of our salvation in Christ, once hidden for ages and for generations, has now been revealed to us. 
I'll make a couple applications for you and get you out of here. I think that we ought to think a whole lot more than we do about the privileged position in redemptive history that we live in. Not even the people in the New Testament had the New Testament scriptures compiled together like we do. God has revealed to us the mystery in his word. You know, I think we all know uh, and we all would say that we need to be reading our Bibles regularly, and most of us probably feel like we need to be reading it more than we do. I'm not here to shame you into that. Uh, I feel the same way. But in order to get the most out of your Bible reading, you need to understand how the Bible fits together. We all need a biblical framework It will make it much less overwhelming for you if it is overwhelming for you to read the Bible. It will make it much less overwhelming if you understand the overarching story and the overarching themes. I would submit to you that nothing has motivated me more in my study of the Bible like understanding the overarching story and the the overarching themes that tie it all together. So I have two recommendations for you that at first glance might seem a little bit silly, but I'm serious. Um... Number one, the Jesus Storybook Bible, and I'm not just talking about for your kids, though if you have kids, this is a great resource for your kids. Uh, number two, the Gospel Story Bible. The, the Jesus Storybook Bible is great for younger kids, maybe as they get, you know, in the middle of elementary school, the Gospel Story Bible. But again, um, I think that these would be great resources for your own personal devotion and your own personal understanding of how everything comes together in Christ, everything moves towards our redemption in Christ, and and how salvation in Christ is really the apex of the Scriptures. Um, Stephanie McColgan was telling our grace group a few weeks ago that she's been teaching third grade girls on Wednesday night, and their curriculum comes from the Gospel Story Bible. She's not sure if they're getting anything out of it, but she, it's blowing her mind. Reading through this and teaching through this is blowing her mind. It's opening up the whole Bible for her. She was talking about um, Noah and it's a few stories. She said, I mean, I knew it was good because it was in the Bible. But, you know, seeing the connection to Christ in every story, and that's really what, what those are about. And I promise you this, in the coming years, reading the Bible will be a whole lot more enjoyable, a whole lot more beneficial for her, and a, and a whole lot less overwhelming, I think, as well. She's seeing Jesus everywhere, even in the Old Testament. And you know what? She's supposed to. And you know what? It's leading her to worship. Remember, in Ephesians 1, 3-14, Paul is pouring his heart out in praise to God for the blessings that he has given us in Christ. And one of those blessings that Paul is rejoicing in is that God has made known to us the mystery of his will, the fullness of our salvation in Christ. It was hidden for ages and generations, but it has now been revealed to us. And when this mystery is unfolded, it's cause for rejoicing. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you are holy, holy, holy. We are not. We are sin-ridden. We were rightly separated from you in our sin, and Lord, it is because of your great mercy 
according to the riches of your grace that we have this great redemption in Christ, that we are reconciled to you. We thank you, Lord. We can't thank you enough. And not only that, you've, you've opened to us the whole story. You, you've, you've allowed us to grow deeper and wider and higher into this great salvation by being further rooted in Christ, by seeing how all of this salvation developed. It's as if you, you gave us the gift all the way back at the very beginning in Genesis 3.15 and you, you opened it and unwrapped it all the way through redemptive history and, and we now see it fully revealed in Christ. Lord, um, captivate our hearts with this great story. Captivate our hearts with your word and, and would you make it less overwhelming for us? Would you make it more enjoyable for us as we see Christ on every page as we understand uh, that everything is moving towards him and his work. Lord Jesus, we love you. We want you to be high and lifted up. Uh, we, we, we gladly serve you. We thank you for this evening together. In Jesus' name, amen.